and welcome to another veterinary team training podcast. My name is Amy Newfield. I'm both the host and owner of Vet Team Training. Please check out all my other blogs, vlogs, and podcasts at vetteamtraining.com. Today, I want to just talk about what it is like and how you can go ahead and become a veterinary technician specialist, a VTS. In the United States, this is becoming more and more of a common credential that you can obtain, and it's post-graduation. We're going to dive into all of the requirements, but the question is, what really is a VTS? Do you want to become a VTS, and what's going to happen after you become one if you decide to go down that path? So let's just take a brief pause and talk about really what is a VTS and the history of it. Well, it's really interesting because a bunch of veterinary technicians who largely worked in specialty hospitals got together in the 90s and started realizing that, and I feel like I say this with the Liam Neeson voice in the back of my head, they have a special set of skills. <laughs> and so they recognize they do have a special set of skills. The reality is, is even in general practice, general practice veterinary technicians and nurses have a special set of skills. You are specialized in a particular area. But these particular veterinary technicians worked in specialty medicine. Most of them worked in emergency specialty medicine. And they realized that placement of central lines, placement of arterial catheters, understanding blood gases, you know, those types of skills, they didn't exist in general practice. So in 1993, NAVDA went ahead and created the Committee on Veterinary Technician Specialties, also known as the CVTS. So this is a committee that falls under the National Association of Vet Techs in America, aka NAVDA. After having a conversation with these veterinary technicians who were enthusiastic and said, listen, we've got this special set of skills, we think we should be specialized, they developed this committee to kind of look into that. And in 1994, NAVTA actually granted the first provisional spe specialty in veterinary technology to AVECT, the Academy of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care Technicians and Nurses. We added the in nurses on because we're a worldwide a technician academy and we need to be inclusive that they're not called technicians everywhere else in the in the world. So technically AVECT is now AVECT-IN. Um, there are over 13 specialties in counting. And why do we need specialty medicine at all? Well, it's really interesting because the doctors were actually the first one to specialize. The AVMA actually created a very similar committee when doctors started becoming specialty doctors and really started to look into what does it take to become specialized in a certain area of veterinary medicine? If we look back to the days of James Harriet, I mean, James Harriet did large animal, small animal. He used to neuter dogs on his kitchen table. Thankfully, we have come a long way. It's because of pet owners, and it's really interesting. Let's look at the trajectory of pet ownership. It wasn't until really the 90s that the pet ownership industry really took off. Prior to that, there wasn't really a lot that could be done if your dog or your cat came down with fleas or ticks or parasites. You know, we had some deworming medication, but that was about it. And so I can tell you that we had a very wonderful dog growing up. Her name was Molly. She was a beagle. And by the way, as a side note, I thought I was going to be a beagle owner for life until I started working in veterinary medicine and realized that's a hunting dog and it barks an awful lot. So now I'm into herders, don't ask, but I'm a long distance runner and I love running with my dogs and I just think that's great. And beagles, they sniff too much and they always stop and are constantly sniffing. So they'd make not the best running partners. Don't get me wrong. There are some beagles out there because I also compete in agility with my dogs and 
There are a couple of beagles that crush it in agility. It was very few and far between. So in any event, I had a beagle named Molly. Molly, she lived on a leash a lot of the time during the day out front. Occasionally, she would break her leash, she'd run through the neighborhood, and she, someone would bring her back. Occasionally, Molly would eat things in her house, and we didn't tend to worry about it. And on occasion, Molly would get fleas. And my parents would take her down to the local fire department where they had pyrethrin dips. That's right. And they would dip Molly in this communal bath water of pyrethrin poison. And she would come home. And I remember the smell. And I remember my parents saying, don't touch Molly. She has to dry first. That's how we handled parasites. Because of that, Molly actually stayed down in our downstairs most of the time because she wasn't allowed upstairs where we slept in the beds. She had fleas and ticks. And my parents didn't want her in the bed. So Molly was not allowed upstairs. Okay, that seemed fair at that time. But that's how a lot of dogs live. They lived in dog houses. They stayed outdoors a lot of the time. And they weren't allowed on family property in terms of the couches and the beds and the cars and all those things. They were very much dogs and cats and especially cats largely lived outside but now i want you to fast forward to the 90s because in the 90s topical flea and tick medications came out this was a game changer when it came to the pet owner bond when the pet owner bond really took off it was around the 90s because you could just put some drops on the back of your dog or cat's neck and fleas and ticks would be gone which means but guess what happened? That's right. Dogs and cats were invited indoors more. They were invited on our couches. They were invited in our beds. We could now snuggle with them. Kids did not need to wait for that pyrethrin dip to dry. You could snuggle your little furry pet. And now they're wearing clothes and they're wearing dresses and we dress them up and we think they're adorable and we call them our fur kids. And that is the trajectory of pet ownership. Along with this comes the advancement of veterinary medical care. The two go hand in hand. If we did not have the availability to get rid of fleas and ticks, the honest truth is, well, we wouldn't have as strong of a bond with our dogs and cats as we do today because they'd be kind of icky and, well, we would probably keep them outdoors more. But because we have this super strong bond with our dogs and cats and because they're fully ingrained in our lives, thanks to parasite control, modern medicine is wonderful. Well, now we expect nothing but the best medical care. So this is where we get specialty medicine. One of the first groups to specialize in the AVMA emergency. We needed emergency hospitals because it wasn't just the general practitioner that could take care of it. We wanted someone specialized now who's going to be able to handle the hit by car dog best. Who's going to be able to attend to our needs in the middle of the night. Prior to emergency, true emergency hospitals coming in, well, a lot of general practices were on call for their clients. I worked at one of those. I had a beeper. That's right, a pager, guys. Um, my pager would go off and there'd be a call service and they would say, hey, we have an owner on the phone. Here's their number. And I'd have to call them back at two in the morning and decide then whether or not I needed to wake up my veterinarian. Was it a true emergency? Could it wait until morning? What did this look like? But now with the addition of emergency 24-hour hospitals, well, game changer. But along with that comes a specialized staff. And after that, we start getting into specific disease processes. Your general practice doctor no longer even needs to manage necessarily diabetes if it's a really complex case. We can go see an internist if it's super complex. What about that neurologically impaired dog or cat? Well, they can go see a neurologist. What about that itchy, scratchy animal that's got a dermatology issue? Yep, they can go see a dermatologist. 
And so we can start to see where the evolution of veterinary medicine really took off around the 90s. And again, really thanks to that increase in that pet owner bond because pets became snugglier because they didn't they weren't so gross, right? They didn't have the fleas and the ticks. So now we are here in the 90s, really the boom of veterinary medicine. And now people are starting to discover that emergency hospitals are a thing. We're starting to see an increase in veterinary emergency hospitals. We're starting to see our doctors become specialized. And now the pet owning public is demanding that veterinary technicians and nurses also have an increase in knowledge in that specialty. They expect to be able to ask that veterinary technician medical questions and that they expect that veterinary technician and nurse to be able to perform high-end specialty procedures. And doctors are expecting their, their technician staff to improve their skills. They want somebody who can slam in an arterial line, who can say, hey doc, this animal's in metabolic acidosis, or hey, what about an insulin CRI? I've already calculated out, what do you think of this, right? That's what they're looking for in their staff now. So really the 90s, are to blame for all of our, our massive amount of pet owner population that we currently have. People love their pets because of a lot of things that happened in the 90s. So why do we have veterinary technician specialty? Because of the simple fact that the pet owning public demanded it. They wanted an increased care and level that they couldn't get in a normal, all-encompassing general practice. And veterinarians started looking towards veterinarians that were specialized. Your general owner practice uh, veterinarian now, they want to be able to turf things. They want to send it to a specialist. The fact that they don't have to cut a back in a dachshund makes them happy. It goes to the neurology center and they will deal with that. And so a lot of times, even veterinarians were looking at veterinarians to help solve and increase the level of care. So now we have 13 specialties and counting thanks to NAFTA and they are worldwide. I think a lot of misconception is because it is the National Association of Vet Tech in Americas that regulate uh, this, the specialties into becoming academies. They feel like, oh, you have to be an American citizen or you have to work in the US. Not true at all. So let's dive into what really does it entail to become a VTS. Well, every veterinary technician specialty has a slightly different requirement, but in large, it's about a year-long application process and you have to meet certain criteria before you even apply. You need a certain amount of hours in the specialty. It ranges anywhere from 5,000 to 10,000 depending on the specialty. You also need to make sure that you have the education and the background to be able to apply. So for the most part in every state in the United States, you have to have gone to an AVMA accredited school as well as pass the NAFTA exam in order to go ahead and be credentialed within your state. Now that's not entirely true for some states, but it is true for a lot of states, the state of California being one, New York being another. You can't be recognized as either an RVT or an LVT unless you went to school as well as also took the VTNE. So you have to look at your state requirements and depending on the actual academy, you can either have a license or a credentialing within your state or have gone to school or you may need both. So definitely look into the academy's rules. If you're someone who got grandfathered in and say got your LVT or your CVT, still maybe sat for the VTNE but didn't go to school, there are some academies that unfortunately you are not eligible for. 
Some academies do require that you've graduated from an AVMA accredited school and passed the VTNE and are credentialed within the state in which you are practicing. So make sure you follow up on that so that you know whether or not you're eligible for that actual academy. Pending that you have met the education requirements, the hours within that specialty, well then, you need to then write some case reports. Usually it's four to five. They are really professional case reports that do a deep dive into what happened with that veterinary patient and your knowledge behind it and your involvement with the case. And then you certainly also need to log cases. In general, it's anywhere from 50 to 150 cases that showcase that you were involved in a case uh, you know, that is centered around dentistry, internal medicine, dermatology, whatever it is. You go ahead and put together an application once you meet all the requirements. You also need a certain set of skills in specialty medicine, for example, for emergency critical care, which I am a VTS in emergency critical care. I can tell you that some of the skills include being able to do a thoracocentesis, abdominocentesis, AFAST, TFAST, uh, placing central lines, arterial lines, understanding uh, blood gases, things of that nature. And you have to have someone sign off that you're able to do these things. Another component of the application process is proving that you have taken continuing education that is specific to that specialty. Generally, it's anywhere from 40 to 60 hours of continuing education, and you typically have to do it leading up to the application about three to five years prior to the application. So you can't do it 10 years ago. It has to be more recent than that. Um, typically, the CE requirements also include that it has to be offered by either race approval or a VTS or a diplomat or somebody who's considered an expert in the actual field. And you will have to provide certificates and course descriptions. So it's imperative that you keep track of your continuing education. So you've met all the requirements. You went ahead and put together this amazing application and then you send it off. <gasps> and now you get to wait. And you send it off to a panel, usually a subcommittee within the actual uh, academy itself. And they're going to take a look at it. Now, some some academies actually blind the application, meaning that you don't get to see where the person is from or their name. And that's honestly the best way that an academy could do it because then there's no perceived judgment or bias or knowledge of potentially that person. The academy committee who is the, overseeing the actual uh, application process is going to take a look at that. And typically what the application looks for is it reviews whether you, as a technician or nurse, have a higher level of knowledge for that specialty. The application looks to see whether or not you have knowledge of why you're doing certain things. So do you truly understand what shock is? Why was that drug given to that patient? It's not, I placed an IV catheter and gave some fluids. It's, I placed an IV catheter because XYZ was happening and here's kind of the pathophysiology of that. And I gave this fluid Here's why we chose that fluids and here's how much we gave and why we gave that much. And here's what happened after that fluid bolus. Now I'm gonna pause here because again, as I, I already kind of alluded, internationally, you can apply for a VTS. Whether or not your country has a standard way to give you credentials as a veterinary technician or nurse dictates whether or not you get to apply. So for example, most of our European countries they have true veterinary nurse certificate or credentialing within that country. But in many other countries, and they're typically second or third world countries, there is no way to become a credentialed or a licensed veterinary technician or nurse. So unfortunately, you would not be able to apply. A great example of this is the country of Egypt. 
there are no veterinary technicians or nurses. It's not a thing in the country of Egypt. Therefore, even if someone was practicing as a veterinary technician or a nurse, they would not be able to apply for the VTS. So your country, your area of or origin has to recognize the profession in which you're working, which is either that as a veterinary technician or a veterinary nurse. So just I wanted to just clarify that internationally we have delegates from all over the world at this point. We even have delegates from Spain, Sweden, the UK, we've got the Netherlands, we've got Canada. I'm sure I'm missing some countries in there. So I totally apologize. But international delegates can absolutely apply so long as their country recognizes the profession of veterinary technology and nursing and has a way to credential or license individuals. So you send in your application and you think, okay, here we go. And there's a ton of online social media that you can check. People freak out and go, I've submitted it and here we go. And then typically an academy will notify you via email and say you have passed or you have not passed. And after application is accepted, then you need to do a self-study. Usually what happens is you have about six months to a year notice that you need to now sit for this exam. And usually you get three chances at the exam. And if you fail after three times and you still have not passed the actual exam, you need to reapply. So most academies allow you more than once to try to take this exam. It's a very difficult exam. Everybody always asks, how hard is the exam? It's ridiculously hard, people. I am not going to lie. I thought that Sitting for my VTNE was difficult. This made the VTNE look so easy. I don't even know how hard to describe it was. I thought I was the smartest person walking into my VTS exam. I had literally read Plum's drug book from front to back. And I remember looking at drugs that I did not even remember were in the drug book. And so I just did a ton. I am a a visual learner. So I did a ton of flashcards and I just started reading. I read over 15 emergency books. I read Plum's drug book. I thought I was so smart going to the exam. I was like, there's no way they're going to ask me anything I don't know. And then I remember feeling like I was the dumbest person walking out of that exam. I was like, I, there were things I didn't even remember like in any of the textbooks. Where did they come up with these questions? I literally had no idea. It's usually the test is occurs in one day. Um, most exams, it's about a four hour exam. Some it's a little bit longer. Some academies offer hands hands on part, but a lot of academies have gotten away from the hands on part because of the pandemic. And now they are online only or they're in person only. There are some academies where you do need to test in person, but a lot of academies are now moving to online versions so that you can actually test from the comfort of your own home. Now, if you think it's gonna be easier testing in the comfort of your own home, do not think that. You actually still have somebody watching you the entire time. So uh, as far as cheating and getting away with that type of stuff, unfortunately, you're not gonna be able to do that. There is actually someone watching you take the exam. So how hard is it? Well, it asks very, very difficult questions. The test is meant to ensure that you understand a greater pathophysiology, a greater pharmacology, a higher level of knowledge than you received in your regular school education. It's not going to just ask you, what is lactated ringers? Oh, it is an isotonic crystalloid. That would be way too easy. No, they want you to calculate out like 
really difficult equations, which they don't give to you ahead of time. So you better have all of your equations memorized. They're going to give you things like blood gas and you're going to need to analyze that blood gas and come up with the right answer. And so it seems like a 200 multiple choice question lasting over four hours should be fairly easy, but it is not. The standard passing rate is that of any standard exam, and it can range as low as only 30 to 40% passing or as high as about 60% passing. So it really does depend. Most exams are gonna be a little bit weighted because the reality of any type of true good exam is that there are some new questions in there that may not test very well. And that might not necessarily be fair to the candidate. So most academies have ways of analyzing the test after it's delivered. And if there are bad questions in there, those are pulled out so that the exam is weighted fairly. And then with any luck, you get a notification that you've passed the exam, which then gives you the right to use those VTS credentials. And it's usually VTS and then in parentheses, who is the academy that has awarded you those credentials? In total, when we think about it, you need at least three to five years of full-time experience within that specialty. You will have also had to meet the education requirements. You went through a year to two year application process, and then you had to wait and study and sit for the exam. So minimally, even if you went through you know, an academy that's only a year long application process, you've dedicated five to seven years of your life to receive your VTS. And so right now, some of you are saying, that sounds like a bunch of BS. Why would I ever do that? Well, you are considered at the forefront of your field. Pretty much if you have a VTS on your resume, it's going to jumpstart your career and put you into different roles, leadership roles, training roles, um, you know, large corporate roles, if that's your thing. Or you're going to be maybe interested in publishing or lecturing. There's some misconception out there that once you become a VTS, you then need to start lecturing at conferences. That's not true. I don't know why that got started, but I often hear from people saying, oh, I don't want to get my VTS because I don't want to have to lecture. Simply not a thing. Typically, all academies do require you to renew your VTS certification. Usually you do that by taking some continuing education, maybe publishing, maybe lecturing, again, not required, maybe helping out on a committee. There's a variety of ways that you can kind of gain the experience needed to showcase that you're still relevant in that specialty. And then usually it's every five years that you have to go ahead and submit for renewal. They will look at your body of work over the last five years. Again, not a big deal because usually most academies, it's just continuing education. Um, and that will probably suffice, keep up your education and your VTS, and then you're good to go. So besides being considered a leader in the field, most veterinary technician specialists, though not all of them, will honor you with a raise. Uh, when I got my VTS, my, my um, company was like, that's great, congrats. And I was like, no, seriously, it's a really great deal. It's a, it's a big deal. And they were like, yeah, okay, cool. Granted, the academy was really small and there was only actually, I think, two or three academies at the time when I got it. Oh, I'm getting old, people. Um, I used to know everybody on the academy. Now we have over, I think it's over 500 members. Uh, so it's getting to be quite big. I don't know everybody anymore in my emergency academy. Uh, but it definitely opens more doors and opportunities. Um, and then you can sh consider sharing your knowledge. You are a wealth of information and a lot of ETS find it to be really rewarding to educate, to teach others, 
And most of them go on to, but not all of them, go on to larger teaching roles. In the very least, in your own hospital, they'll probably tap you to help create standards of operating procedures, protocols, right? You have the knowledge. What's the best way to do things? One of the greatest gifts that being a BTS gives to you is that you get a whole family of people that very much love the same specialty you do. I have gotten to meet some amazing people from around the world. In fact, some of really good friends of mine are from different countries because of the academy that I belong to. I can't imagine not being a VTS because while it was all really hard work to get here, my goodness, uh, my entire career trajectory changed the minutes I obtained my VTS. And I started doing things that I never thought I would do, like publishing and speaking and all of those things. Um, I just really took off with it, especially after I got my VTS, which is crazy. I look back at my career and I just think I'm so lucky that I decided to push myself. I thought I failed that exam and I was so happy that I did not. Uh, if you do fail again, you can go ahead and retake. I think everybody immediately thinks it's a crisis if you fail. No, most academies allow you more than once before you have to reapply again. I'd also like to mention that there's a VTS called clinical practice. And as I mentioned earlier, thanks to Liam Neeson and my not so great impression of him, people who are working in clinical practice, AKA general practice, you have a certain set of special skills. You really do. I just recently got a dog a couple years ago and I had to look up the vaccine schedule. I had no idea what vaccines were recommended for puppies because I am in emergency medicine. I know little to nothing about how to do dental profies anymore. Nobody wants me doing them. I would not be able to currently pass the VTNE. I am 100% sure I will fail it. Now, any of the emergency questions, I'm gonna nail those, but pretty much everything else I am going to fail. General practice, clinical practice is not my wheelhouse right now. So you can become specialized in clinical practice. And I don't think a lot of people know that. We need more VTSs in clinical practice. You guys are running literal circles around all of us very specialized dermatology technicians, emergency technicians when it comes to the well-being and the care of your general animal patient. I know nothing about that stuff anymore. I need your help when I get a new puppy and kitten. So anyway, this is a little bit about how to become a VTS. So how do you find more information out? I need you to go to navta.net. That's N-A-V-T-A.net. Click on the resource tab at the top and then scroll to the area that says specialties. Open that up and then you will go ahead and you can click on a button that says find an approved academy. Find the approved academy that you are passionate about or that you're currently in. Maybe you are really interested in neurology or really interested in internal medicine. Maybe you're not in that specialty yet. Open up that tab, find that academy, and then go ahead and read up on the credentials and the information because it's a long road to just even apply. So be aware of what you need to do so that when it comes time for application process, you've already checked off all the boxes and you can just go ahead and apply. I think a lot of people aren't aware of what a long road it is and all of the requirements that are necessary to just even apply. And then from there, do it, do it people. That said, it isn't for everyone. It does take some time commitment. Make sure you have the time 
that you need to be able to study, to put together a professional application. Too many people just try to wing it at the last minute or too many people think, oh, well, I graduated from an AVMA school or I passed the VTNE. I'm super smart. You are not. Trust me on this. You need to read textbooks. You need to get down to the nitty gritty details. What is ischemia and reperfusion injury? Look up the pathophysiology of it and figure out that calcium is one of the main issues in that entire chain of, of process there. Unless you know that type of nitty gritty information, unfortunately, you may not pass the exam. So I want you to study every little detail because that's how hard the exam is. But again, when you're done with this process, you will have learned so much. You will be at the forefront of your industry and it's going to feel really good. And then you get to meet all these wonderful like-minded people in your specialty and literally get an entire wonderful, weird veterinary family out of it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that this inspires some of you to take that VTS journey. And if you do have any questions about the VTS journey or the path, please reach out to me. Again, I am a VTS in emergency critical care for Avectin. So I'm always happy to answer any questions. You can reach me at vetteamtraining.com. Please also check out all my other blogs, vlogs, and podcasts. And thank you so much for being a unicorn.